Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, August 20th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Talking about lots of old media today, Vice wants to send you physical zines through the United States Postal Service. It turns out a number of industries are still using floppy disks. A new online database 50 years in the making and created by Julia Child's former neighbor. And some crop art celebrating vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. The U.S. Postal Service has been making headlines and going viral around social media for the past couple of weeks as attention turns to the need for mail-in voting and the efforts of some politicians to block that service. Now, Vice is doing something that a decade or so ago wouldn't be extraordinary at all. They're going to send their news to people via snail mail, specifically using USPS. Called The Mail, and run by Vice's motherboard team led by senior staff writer Aaron Gordon, it will be a weekly newsletter on all things USPS. There will be a free digital version via Substack, but for $8 you can get a print version sent to your mailbox. The print version will just be going out once a month and only through November, but it sounds like it'll be pretty cool. With art and heavy design work, they're billing it as a zine. And those paid subscribers will also get extra digital content as well. Motherboard editor-in-chief Jason Keebler told Neiman Lab, quote, We've always been a publication that's written about election security, hacking, security on the internet. Now we've got a digital newsletter about election security, about one of the oldest technologies we've developed. The zine will be about the post office, but will also include articles and art about more motherboard-y topics. Hacking, algorithms, labor, video games, online communities, digital rights, etc. I like the dichotomy of having an email about paper mail and paper mail about the internet. End quote. Aaron Gordon, who's heading the project, became a sort of accidental reporter on the post office beat a few years back when he investigated a pattern of delivery trucks that kept catching fire. He told Neiman Lab that he's excited about the chance to discuss less current but still fascinating and important stories about the post office. He said, quote, Recent events have been very important and are changing the way the post office functions, but much of the situation the post office finds itself in today is the product of events that happened a long time ago. A lot of that doesn't fall under what we call traditional news coverage. I can't tell my editor I should write an article about something that happened in 1970. But a newsletter is a good way to contextualize a lot of that past information with current events in a way that feels natural to readers. End quote. He's also eager to debunk some of the misconceptions that have been spread as national conversation on the Postal Service has heated up. For one, he said, quote, The post office is not getting defunded. When the United States Postal Service was created in 1971, the express purpose of it was that it did not receive any funding from the federal government, but it was completely self-funding based on the revenue you get from selling postage and whatnot. The idea that Trump is defunding the post office just isn't accurate. He's trying to block the stimulus funding, which is a totally different dynamic, end quote. So interesting history, factoids, and art about the post office, plus a little myth-busting and context around what's happening now. If that sounds like your kind of thing, check out the link in the show notes to subscribe. Personally, I think it's pretty awesome to see a media outlet decide to make a return to print, even if it is a temporary zine and not a full print issue. 
you know, anything that's a little more creative, a little slower, less clickbaity, and more thought-provoking is something I'm here for. And also, on the topic of the post office, I was reminded by Stephen Colbert's Late Show earlier this week about the 1997 post-apocalyptic Kevin Costner film, The Postman. It totally bombed in theaters, but it kind of seems more relevant than ever now. So, if you're looking for a movie to watch this weekend and you're into being horrified but don't care if the movie is, you know, actually good, maybe cue that one up. Well, speaking of older media and technology, apparently the Boeing 747 still uses floppy disks. This finding comes from a video tour of a British Airways 747 by cybersecurity firm Pentest Partners that was displayed at the hacker conference DEF CON. British Airways recently retired its 747 fleet, which is how the firm was able to get this kind of usually exclusive access. The biggest takeaway from the tour for many, however, was the 3.5-inch floppy drive. And as a reminder for the young or forgetful, a 3.5-inch floppy disk can only hold about 1.44 megabytes. That's less than one mp3 of an average-length song. Quoting Gizmodo, Apparently, the drive is the 747's navigation database loader and needs to be updated every 28 days. As in, some poor engineer has to visit 747-400 and manually deliver updates, or the planes wouldn't be able to fly. And it's not just the 747s. Per The Verge, the majority of Boeing 737s are also updated via floppy disks. Operators of these planes, according to a 2014 Aviation Today report, have binders full of floppy disks for all the avionics that they may need. That includes important information like airports, runways, flight paths, and waypoints used by pilots to make flight plans. It also sounds horribly inefficient, as while some systems may only require one floppy disk of updates, others could require as many as eight floppy disks, end quote. Now, the 747 did debut in 1988, so being designed originally with a floppy disk drive makes perfect sense, but it is surprising they've never upgraded. Although, it turns out that a number of industries still use floppy disks or have only recently started to phase them out. According to Digital Trends, machines like ones used for embroidery, some medical equipment, ATMs, and yes, aviation hardware, all frequently still rely on floppy disks because the machinery was built to last for decades and is extremely expensive to replace. In fact, until just last year, the U.S. Department of Defense was using 8-inch floppy disks for the nuclear weapons system. Yeah, 747s using floppy disks doesn't sound so bad after hearing that. But while it may seem inefficient or outdated to the point of dangerous, Gizmodo points out that it actually could be safer. Quote, Modern isn't always better. The Boeing 737 MAX, for instance, featured advanced software systems, but glitches resulted in two horrific crashes that killed 346 passengers, leading Boeing to halt production on the line at the end of last year. Yet another software issue with the 737 MAX was found in February, and after more than a year of the planes being grounded, Boeing just restarted production in May. Conversely, while the Boeing 747-400 is no longer in production, only two have ever been involved in passenger deaths over 8.42 million flights per airsafe.com, end quote. 
And Digital Trends concurred in their assessment of the Department of Defense, quote, One of the biggest advantages of keeping the system in place, outside of the decades of means testing that it has undergone, is the fact that it's far removed from modern computing. The reliance on old-fashioned floppies means there's no need for an internet connection, and that narrows the possibility of cyber assault considerably, end quote. So, alright, we can still roll our eyes at the vaporwave bands who tried starting a floppy disk label, but turns out some of these industries clinging to the floppy disk actually kind of have a good reason for it. For anyone who has been looking for new hobbies during quarantine, I have previously recommended various ways that you can volunteer online with archives, mapping initiatives, and the like. But I've got a new one for you today, cleaning up, translating, or adding to a new database of over 5,000 historical cookbooks. The Sifter, which went live online earlier this summer, is the result of 50 years of archival work by Barbara Ketchum Wheaton. An art history scholar who discovered her love of cooking after getting married and having children, Wheaton also just so happens to have lived next door to one Julia Child. Child, unsurprisingly, had a huge collection of historical cookbooks, and she welcomed Wheaton regularly into her home to peruse and catalog the books. That was in the 1960s, and over the decades, Wheaton ventured to many other library collections, building a database of cooking-related texts that dated back as far as the 800s. The results of this collection are now online in a Wikipedia-style crowdsourced database. Quoting Atlas Obscura, The Sifter isn't a collection of recipes, or a repository of entire texts. Instead, it's a multilingual database currently 130,000 items strong of the ingredients, techniques, authors, and section titles included in more than 5,000 European and U.S. cookbooks. It provides a bird's-eye view of long-term trends in European and American cuisines, from shifting trade routes and dining habits to culinary fads. Search cupcakes, for example, and you'll find the term may have first popped up in Mrs. Putnam's Receipt Book and Young Housekeeper's Assistant, a guide for ladies running middle-class households in the 1850s. Search peacock and you'll find the bird's meat was sometimes eaten from the 1400s to the 1700s in courtly England. Wheaton hopes the website will be useful for more complex projects. She suggests, for example, using the site to track the relationship between cookbook authors' gender and the value of the ingredients included in their recipes, as a way of measuring gendered economic and cultural capital over time. End quote. Wheaton has seen firsthand how the scholarship of food has interplayed with gender over the years. Studying food used to be seen by male historians as unimportant or crass, a holdover from the Enlightenment which considered sensual topics like taste and touch to be taboo. And even as women began to reclaim food scholarship and culinary history throughout the 60s and 70s, some other women saw it as perpetuating the oppression of women by focusing on their ties to the kitchen. That began to change in the 80s, however, when food finally became a respected sector of academia. And Wheaton was right there, speaking at the first symposiums and publishing books on the history of various cuisines. Wheaton was always fascinated by the full context of cookbooks, not just the recipes, but information about the author, the impacts of the place and time in which it was published, and the recipes were conceived. Quoting again, She envisioned a sweeping catalog of cookbooks, like a landscape seen from a satellite, that would allow her to map the contours of culinary history, the shifting trade routes, the fickle food fads, the new technologies. 
Researching her book in the late 1970s, Wheaton used a system of stacked cards with punched holes around the edges, each precise formation of holes representing particular categories. When she wanted to see all the works in a particular category, say books that mentioned peaches, she slipped a knitting needle through that series of holes, end quote. By the 80s, once IBM came out with a computer that could handle accent marks, Wheaton began logging her notes on the computer but it still took 30 years more for the database as we can access it now to launch. It's not a sleek, intuitive database, and again, there are no recipes here. It's more like a searchable bibliography. If you're a researcher, it's a goldmine. If you're not, well, it is a little hard to see how to use it. However, you can help improve it. After making an account, you can edit entries for accuracy, offer translation skills, or input data from any pre-1940s cookbooks you have lying around or ones that are listed on the Internet Archive. So if you are into food or databases and just looking for something to do, check it out. You might help uncover some stories that are just as interesting as the one behind the database itself. Something remarkable has been mowed into a crop field in Kansas. It's not a mysterious crop circle. It's a portrait of vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris. That's pretty well done, too. But that's no surprise when you find out who was behind it. Renowned crop artist Stan Hurd. Hurd has been a prominent land artist for decades, working primarily in his adopted hometown of Lawrence, Kansas. Over the years, he's created portraits of people like Kiowa Indian chief Satanta and recreations of Van Gogh paintings, all planted, mowed, weed-whacked, and occasionally burned by Hurd himself. His profile rose a bit in 2011 when an indie film called Earthwork premiered that dramatized the true story of a piece that Hurd made called Countryside, which he made in a New York City lot owned at the time by Donald Trump. More recently, Hurd made headlines for his tribute to the frontline crop art that he dedicated to healthcare workers in April. And despite being 70 years old, this year Hurd shows no intentions of stopping his massive land artworks. If anything, they seem to be getting more relevant and nationally recognized. If you want to see both the Kamala Harris crop art and the frontline workers one, or watch the movie, links to all of those things, as ever, are in the show notes. That is all for today. The Kotke Ride Home was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I am off to go bid on some floppy disk drives on eBay. I hope you all have a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you tomorrow.